1 Timothy chapter 1, 12 through 20. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. You may be seated. Let me just say there's a lot going on here this morning. This passage is, uh, this passage is a lot. And uh, I want to start with <laughs> parents specifically and the rest of you that have had parents in the past. You know those times when you're just overlooking your child's behavior. You're like, eh, eh. Maybe they're getting a little rowdy, maybe a little restless. Maybe they said something they shouldn't have said, gave you a look they shouldn't have given you. are like, eh, eh. And you just overlook it. Can you think about the times, though, when you reach that point? All right, that's it. No more. You ever been there before? I've told a story on my wife that I won't tell again today, but uh, I remember... And I've told this story before too, but it's so funny I can't stand it. I got to tell it. This is when John was little, <laughs> and uh, we had a company, a, an, a couple from church had come down, and for the first time, and they're you know seeing our house, and they lovely people. And John comes down the steps. I guess he was about I don't know two at the time or so, and he had a plastic sword. And the lady was like, "Oh, how cute!" And he proceeded to go over. Whack her right in the face. She's like, oh, that's okay. I said, no, no, that, that, that's, that's not okay. She's like, I had boys. I'm like, no, 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 that, that's not okay. So John was disciplined, and he, he turned out lovely, by the way. He's a, he's a good boy. But you just, sometimes you reach a point where you say, no more. You're not going to continue in the actions, in the attitudes, in the pattern that you are currently holding. And there have to be those times, right? I mean, right? As parents? I've, I've heard of these parents who have a no, no rule. I never tell my kids no. Ha! Ha! <laughs> I think it's primary that kids learn no before they learn yes. They need to learn what's, what's not okay so that they can learn what is okay. Today, and as you see here, there comes a point in the life of believers, in the life of a church, where we've got to say, that's it. No more. We can't allow what's going on to go on anymore. So we'll start here in verse 12, and there's a lot in between here and there, and we'll try to get through it as thoroughly as we can. And there's a lot left out of this. So we, we, could have spent, we could have spent a good four messages on this passage, for sure, maybe more. Uh, but we're going to do one, so stay with me. And I've got a slide change error, John, so if you'll pick me up, I'd appreciate it. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Now, let's just take a second or so to look back at where we left off from last week. Paul is writing this letter, this epistle, to Timothy. 
Um, And he's calling Timothy in this letter to action. And Timothy is at his post there in Ephesus. And Timothy is there in Ephesus to ensure that the doctrine being taught in that church was sound and pure. The teachers there had been drifting into myths, genealogies, and speculations about the Jewish law in that cosmopolitan cultural center that was Ephesus. And Timothy has quite an assignment in front of him. But Paul is going to be there kind of in the background, kind of in support and instruction to help in Timothy's corner to encourage, teach, lead, and cheer Timothy on from afar, which is what the point of this letter is. And he does a little of that raw rhyme here, starting in verse 12. He starts into a recollection, Paul does, of his conversion. Not as an aside, but rather as a precursor to a hard word later. Paul thanks God for giving him strength. Actually, he thanks Christ Jesus, our Lord. He's drawing Timothy into his own narrative. Thanking Jesus for the strength that Jesus gave to Paul. Why? Because Jesus judged Paul faithful and appointed Paul to his service. Now, who did that? Jesus did that, right? So, Christ gave Paul strength, judged Paul faithful, and appointed Paul to service for the Lord. Because Paul's awesome, right? Well, not exactly. Verse 13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. So yeah, if you remember the message from last week and the week before, um, Paul says that he was, to say the least, not a very nice guy, especially as far as concerns Christianity, the way. He was formerly a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Now see that and look at that. Focus on that for a second, okay? Paul... Before Christ arrested him, was a blasphemer. That means that he spoke evil about Jesus. He was a persecutor. Paul was seeking to arrest and abuse any followers of Jesus. He was an insolent opponent. That means he was arrogantly insulting Christ and his people. And this is when Jesus judged Paul faithful? Well... Yes, because it's because Paul received mercy. Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. Paul deserved death, hell, and the grave. But Jesus gave him mercy and called Paul into his service for the very church that Paul was persecuting. Because see, that's what God does. He sees us and he calls us while we're in our sins. And he shows us mercy and enlists us into his service when he sees fit. And like Paul says, that mercy comes because he and we, when we're in our sins, are acting ignorantly in unbelief. Okay? We don't know. And if we do know, we're dead to the point that we can't respond favorably to the gospel or to the commands of Christ. We don't know any better, per se. So... At his appointed time, in his appointed way, Christ extends mercy and grace, which isn't mentioned in this verse, but the next verse it's there. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. There it is. There's that grace. Paul can't help but refer to the grace of God here. That grace that arrested him on the road to Damascus. That undeserved favor, that unmerited release overflowed for me, Paul says, remembering the blinding light that overwhelmed him. And that grace overflowed for Paul with faith and love. God showed mercy and overflowed grace that was flavored with faith and love. The grace of Christ poured out on Paul and resulted in Paul receiving and then exhibiting faith and love. Jesus moved and then Paul was changed and started showing the results of that change which translated into Paul living a life of faith and love which have their roots in the Christ who adopted and changed Paul. The faith and love of Christ became the faith and love of Paul. The grace that God gives 
gives us the faith and the love that that grace requires. And that grace and that faith and that love are in Christ Jesus. And Paul, of all people, knows that well. Look, just look at verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save church folk. Christ Jesus came into the world to save people who are trying real hard to do better. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom... I, Paul says, am the foremost. This is quite a verse, and it packs several good, big punches. Paul's been talking about his conversion, and in the midst of it he says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Now that's a pretty interesting phrase. Why would he say that? What's he trying to convey? Well, it turns out from reading, researching, That phrase, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, was a way to mark out things that were commonly taught as basic tenets of the young faith that was Christianity. It was kind of like catechizing. Short statements to commit to memory to serve as guidelines, guardrails for the truth. And him saying that would have been familiar to Timothy and to Timothy's hearers as well. So it's like when they would hear this statement is trustworthy, they're like, oh, this is one of those things. And it turns out there are five trustworthy statements in the pastoral epistles. I just want to go through them real quickly. Uh, This one, 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm foremost. 1 Timothy 3.1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. 1 Timothy 4, 7-10, Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. 2 Timothy 2, 11-13, The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And the last one is Titus 3, 4-8. to But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So all of these texts here, these five sayings called trustworthy, are translated from the Greek word pistos. Trustworthy is pistos, which means faith or faithful. They're faithful, trustworthy, foundational truths to this young and growing church and to this young and growing overseer, Timothy, and then Titus as well. And the statement to Timothy back in 1 Timothy 1.15 is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Now, I think that the trustworthy statement, the main focus that would have been taught over and over, is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's a good basic tenet of the faith. Jesus said the very thing, that very thing in Luke 19.10, when he said, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus' mission was to bring salvation to lost people. His lost people. Jesus' name literally means Savior. And the saving that he did and does was salvation from sins. From the wrath of God because of sins. So Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's a good basic element of the Christian faith. No, you can't sin. No, you can't be a sinner because the wrath of God is coming. But but Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You gotta hear the bad news before the good news is effective, right? But Paul doesn't just teach the basic doctrine, he makes it personal. 
Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Now, Paul had just said a couple of verses earlier in this passage that he was formerly a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. And here he puts that in perspective and says that as long as he's talking about sinners being saved, it would do well to look at him because he is the foremost. After all Paul had done, after all Jesus had forgiven him for, after all that he had done and after all that Jesus had forgiven him for, Paul felt as though he was the foremost. The word means first in rank. If you're ranking sinners, Paul says, I'm at the top of the list. I'm numero uno. 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 We're not uno. Uno. He's like, you, you want to know who the best sinner in the world is? It's me. Or worst. I don't know. And I think he really meant it. I don't think he's just giving lip service here. I don't think he's just being falsely humble or talking nonsense. After coming into contact with Jesus and receiving grace from him, I think Paul really felt like he was the foremost of sinners. And he was pretty bad, right? I mean, not to make fun of him, but he was rough. He wasn't a nice person. And neither were you. But we'll look at that later. But for now, Paul not only magnifies his pre-conversion sin, but also his post-conversion vantage point and the opportunities that that afforded them. Verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And again, what a verse, right? Paul says that him receiving mercy provides a unique opportunity for Jesus to do what only Jesus can do. But I received mercy for this reason. Paul knew that God had a particular plan following saving Paul. For this reason, that in me, Paul says, as the foremost, as the worst of the worst, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul knows that this is Godish. This is so much like God of God. He chose the worst, Paul says, so that the patience, the long-suffering, the slowness in avenging wrongs, according to the definition, the, the patience of Jesus might be put on full display. The darkest background makes the brightest light seem even brighter. So in Paul, in showing mercy, Jesus was putting his grace on the most prominent stage possible. Again, Jesus literally stops this Saul, this Middle Eastern terrorist on the road to Damascus, on his way to arrest and punish Jesus' followers and cause this tormentor to be on mission with him. And imagine showing up to preach the gospel you received from the one that you were setting out to persecute. And Paul says that Jesus used him as an example to show anyone and everyone that the grace of God was sufficient to save anybody. If he can save me, he can save you. That's what Paul's saying. He saved me and showed me mercy so that he could hold me up as an example and say, look, I saved even Paul. And that he did. And then Paul just can't help as a result of this, but to break out in praise in verse 17, which is a single verse hymn, and it's lovely. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, again, it, it's kind of simplistic, and we look at that, and we maybe don't think too much of it, but let's, let's just slow down, okay? Let's meditate on this, and I've only got like this many lines, so I'm not going to drag this out. But let's meditate on this picture. And this praise of God on a consistent basis. Again, following reflection on his conversion story, Paul looks at God and is in awe to the king of the ages. Jesus is king of and for all time, past, present, future. To the king of the ages, immortal, no beginning, no end. God didn't start and God will not end. He is immortal. Nobody created God. God is the generator, the beginner of all things, all life. Now watch this. Invisible. God, outside of the visible body of Jesus Christ, 
is literally not visible. He's invisible. Why would Paul praise God for that? I mean, I get the king of the age is immortal, the only God, but invisible? Why worship the invisibility of God? God is clearly shown in the Bible as invisible. John 1.18 No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So Jesus gave us a visible representation of who God is, what God looks like, what God would do. Colossians 1.15 He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. And again, means fountainhead, source there. Jesus wasn't the first thing created. Jesus is uncreated as well. 1 John 4.12 No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Why would you praise the invisibility of God? To me, the one thing that comes to my mind is His otherness. Christ is in a human body today. Thankfully. Incarnation is a wonderful doctrine. But so is invisibility. He's not like us. He's different. We can't contain all that He is with these little receptors here. We couldn't take Him in. Moses said, I want to see your glory. He said, Moses, you can't do that. I'd vaporize you. Glory! He's other. He's different. We need to praise Him for that. And Paul reflects on this attribute of God as something to be worshipped, something to think about. I want, you to, I want to challenge you this week. Think about the invisible God as you go out this week. And ask God to help you understand, why should I praise you for being invisible? I'll leave that there. And then Paul says that God is the only God. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. There is no other God. People worship what they call other gods, but they're not gods at all. There's only one God. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I, God says, am He. And there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. There is no God beside me. God says in Deuteronomy 32, Isaiah 46, 8 to 11. Remember this, this is, watch this. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have proposed and I will do it. I am God and there is no other. So that means that anything else we give worship to is a false God. Because there's only one. To the only God, Paul finishes this verse, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Again, that verse could have been four or five sermons. Honor is reverence. Recognizing the elevated status of a person or a being in this case. To God be honor. Reverence. Recognizing his elevated status. And glory. We talked about this a couple of Wednesdays ago. What is glory? Glory is the Greek word doxa. I've got that up here too. And it means, and I started with the third um, definition because the other ones weren't significant to this passage. Listen to what glory means. We sang about it this morning. Majesty. A thing belonging to God. The kingly majesty which belongs to him as supreme ruler. Majesty in the sense of the absolute perfection of the deity. A thing belonging to Christ. The kingly majesty of the Messiah. The absolutely perfect inward or personal excellency of Christ. The majesty. Have you ever been in the presence of anybody that you were just in awe of? 
can't believe I'm in the same room as blank. I'm a Redskins fan. John Riggins is my all-time sports hero. And I stood in front of John Riggins wearing a 44 jersey. I was wearing the 44 jersey. And he put his hand on my shoulder. Oh, y'all, y'all don't know. That's John Riggins. That's the diesel. That's my all-time hero, sports hero. I was in awe. Should I have been? Not the point here. I was. He even remarked on my son's shoulders and how my son had shoulders like a linebacker. I'm like, yeah, that's right, Brigo, that's right. Yes. Oh, it's John Riggins. I forgot. I don't want to be silly. And I wasn't silly. I was reverent because of who that man was to me. We need to understand that glory belongs solely to God. And there is no one, no thing, no creature or person that we should ever stand in awe of compared to the majesty of who God is. Oddly enough, when the Redskins won the Super Bowl in 1982, the cover of Sports Illustrated was John Riggins with a, a, a Miami Dolphin hanging off his back jersey. And the title was Power and Glory. That just popped in my head, by the way. Nobody, nobody, nobody deserves glory like God deserves glory. To God alone be honor and glory forever and ever, never to end. And Paul ends his hymn of praise with amen. May it be so truly, yea, verily, verily. And again, we could end there too on that meditation. But Timothy has a job to do with all this magnificent information. Watch this in verse 18 and then following that in verses 19 and 20. 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. I really struggled with where to end this passage for this message. And it almost ended in verse 17. I kicked it around with some other people and wrestled with it and figured it was good to include 18 to 20 in with this message. Because again, Paul's not just recounting his conversion and praising God with this message. He's not just doing it out of the blue here. He's calling Timothy to action as a result of what he's recounting. And so, verse 18 starts with, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy. Again, there's a job to do. Something to be spurred onto from all of this. From this mercy that Paul received. This grace that was shown to him. Because of the greatness of the God to which Paul is referring. Timothy, there in Ephesus, is saddled with protecting the purity of the doctrine that teaches of this all-glorious, grace-giving God. So after calling Timothy's attention to God and His glory, Paul says that this is what's entrusted to Timothy. All this that I've just talked about, Timothy, this grace, this mercy, this conversion story, this God who did it all, The charge, which that's a military term, a command from a superior officer, I, Paul, entrust this to you, Timothy. To entrust means to place beside or near or set something before. And Paul takes this glorious picture of God and His grace and the gospel and sets it before Timothy and places it in his care, commits it to be Timothy's responsibility. And that's huge. Timothy, you see this great God? You see this honor and this majesty and this glory and my own conversion story and all the power? Here it is and it's for you. And I've got something that you need to do with it. And something you need to do for it. And Timothy is called my child by Paul. Remember last week he called Timothy his child, his son in the faith? And he says that he's entrusting this charge to Timothy in accordance with the prophecies previously made about him. Later in 1 Timothy 4, and I don't have this up there, 
Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.14, Do not neglect the gift that you have, Timothy, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So there was a time when the council of elders laid their hands on Timothy and prophesied over him, charging him to serve and minister. And Timothy is to take this lofty picture of God and this prophetic charge and do what with them? Now watch this. That by them you may wage the good warfare. Again, here's military terminology, right? Things are about to get violent. Can't we just stay in the grace and the glory? No, we can't. The Christian life in general is a war. And that's not what we're here to talk about this morning. But Timothy is called to a particular battle in the war. Verses 19 and 20. Holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Timothy is charged with warfare. And what's he armed with in this warfare? In this warfare, Holding faith and a good conscience. You guys that have been in battles, how about I said, all right, guys, you got faith and a good conscience. Go have at it. I'm going to stay right here if it's all the same to you, sir. <laughs> but in the spiritual warfare, that's exactly what we need. may not feel like much, but it's, but it's monstrous. Faith is the very air we breathe in the Christian life. Faith in the doctrine. Faith in the person and work of Christ. Faith in all that God is for in and through us. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. So in the midst of warfare preparation, hold fast to faith. But not just faith. Faith and a good conscience. Timothy is about to do battle in the spiritual and the physical realm. And it's imperative that he is holding a good conscience. If he doesn't have a good conscience, what is he? He's a hypocrite. Good for you, but not for me. Good for thee, but not for me. You do what I tell you. Do as I say, not as I do. It's not going to work in the spiritual realm. Got to have a good conscience, a clear conscience, that what I'm telling you, I'm living by. I'm smoking what I'm selling. I shouldn't say that. But it made you laugh. A good conscience is me telling you what I believe and what I'm holding on to. If there are things in Timothy's life that are not right, things that have him wavering and doubting, sin in his life, he will be weak and unstable. So a good conscience is vital. He has to be walking the talk and talking the walk. And Paul shows that Shows the why of that when he says that by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Now, what does this refer to? It might might could mean the charge given to Timothy. Some people by rejecting the charge have made shipwreck of their faith. It might could mean the good warfare. Some people by neglecting the good warfare have made shipwreck of their faith. It might could mean faith and a good conscience. Or it might mean faith or it just might mean a good conscience. It's kind of tough to figure out. And listen, I am no Greek scholar. I look up Greek words on a computer and listen to them, pronounce them, so that I might be possibly get them right, and I usually don't. But I know nothing of Greek sentence structure and what points to what and such. I can't diagram a Greek sentence and say, okay, this is referring to this. I can't do that to an English sentence now that I think about it. <laughs> Fortunately, praise God, there are tools that are available to help with such things. Authors and scholars I. Howard Marshall and Philip H. Towner 
wrote a critical and exegetical commentary on the pastoral epistles. And this section they cover and they say this. Faith and a good conscience combine. As in 1 Timothy 1.5, which is last week we talked about, Paul said the aim of our charge is what? Love that issues from a sincere faith, a good conscience, and... Somebody help me. I think I've got it in here somewhere. Uh, there it is. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. There we go. Okay? So what they're saying here, and back to the quote, um, faith and a good conscience combine to characterize authentic Christian existence. Faith denotes not just belief, but the whole attitude of the Christian, which is determined by trust in God. The conscience functions to direct and monitor conduct according to a set norm, which would be understood to be not only the objective content of the faith, but also the patterns of thought shaped by commitment to it. As we have seen, the pastoral, and they're still in the quote here, the pastoral epistles present the conscience, as good or bad, from a theological perspective. Its condition is related to one's disposition toward the gospel. At the same time, they say, the conscience is needed to safeguard the faith. As the following description of apostasy shows, faith and a good conscience are interdependent elements in the author's concept of Christian existence. They finish by saying the concentration on these two factors, especially in relation to the neglect of them by their opponents, explains the failure to repeat agape from verse 5, which was the aim of our charge is love. So these people that have made shipwreck of their faith have neglected faith and a good conscience. Those things being combined. You can't separate them. End of quote, by the way. That all means that the combination of faith and a good conscience are what's being referenced here. They mention verse 5, and there it is, and we said last week that it's vital. Paul's saying that it's the single goal, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So the aim is love, and that love is to come from what? A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. See that repetition here in verse 19? So by rejecting this, this faith and good conscience, which serve to help focus us on our aim of love, some have made shipwreck of their faith. If you neglect the main things, you will fail. And some have done just that, which Paul describes as making shipwreck of their faith. They crashed and burned. They neglected the plain and the main things and they drifted like rudderless boats onto the rocks of apostasy. They focus on speculations, myths, genealogies, wanting to teach the law but knowing nothing of that law nor of the Christian faith. Warren Wiersbe says it this way, quote, Professed Christians who make shipwreck of their faith do so by sinning against their consciences. Bad doctrine usually starts with bad conduct and usually with secret sin, end of quote. And I bet I saw this similar thought, reading different things, listening to different things, watching different things, with bad doctrine being developed around bad conduct four or five different times in four or five different places in preparation for this week. See, this is how it works. I want to justify my behavior. I want to justify what I'm doing and tell everybody, oh, it's okay. So I develop a doctrine that shows that I'm okay in what I'm doing. And that doctrine is not just deeds that I'm doing, it's teaching that I'm proclaiming. Doctrine developed around justifying sinful behavior. And this is key. This is doctrine then that is taught and its teachers must be dealt with because their sin is not okay and their doctrine is putrid because of it. In this case, as it should be with all such cases, the discipline is harsh and maybe even final. And that's exactly what Paul calls for, for Timothy to do, and gives an example of Paul doing it. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's where everybody goes... Paul mentions a couple of guys who have done this very thing. A couple of fellows whose names are Hymenaeus and Alexander. 
These two did what Paul said some people do. They made shipwreck of their faith by rejecting faith and a good conscience. And he says that his response to them was that he handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. He he said that. It's in the Bible. Paul handed over these two guys to Satan. Now what's that mean? What does Satan do? Who's Satan? Satan is the adversary. That's what his name means. Jesus says in John 10.10 that Satan here called the thief comes to do what? Steal, kill, and destroy. 1 Corinthians 5, 3-5, in describing the course that the church in Corinth should take with a man who is in an incestuous relationship with his father's wife, Paul says this, For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus... You are to deliver this man to Satan, watch, for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is not tiddlywinks. Here, Paul says the church should disassociate with this man and make a proclamation that he's no longer a part of their fellowship. And that they are delivering him over to Satan. It is a death sentence. I'm not trying to blow your mind here. I'm just reading what the Bible says. It's a decision by the church to no longer protect this person from satanic attack. There are benefits to being members of the body of Christ. And if you don't have some of those benefits, woe be unto you. And if you choose sin over fellowship with the body, you're outside the protection of the church now. You're outside the protection of the body of Christ and God and the church say, Satan, destroy them. Where's the grace? Where's the love? Sometimes you reach a point where you've got to say, that's enough. No more. And this is repeated sin. And we'll talk about that at the end. This is not, oh, they messed up. You're dead. Devil! This person's getting on my nerves. Kill them. They really bother me. I don't like them. Kill them. That's not what this is about, okay? It's a death sentence. It's a decision by the church to no longer protect this person from satanic attack. Opening the door for the devil to come and literally kill this man in 1 Corinthians. The destruction of his flesh. And it seems to me that this guy's a believer. Because Paul says his flesh will be destroyed, but his spirit will be saved in the day of the Lord. But there is a definite act of this guy and these two guys back in 1 Timothy 1 being handed directly over to Satan for the punishment of their sins. And Paul is saying to Timothy, these guys are teaching some bad doctrine. They won't stop. And it's going to be your job to hand them over to Satan. Why? Because their sin is not in ignorance. Paul said, I was shown mercy because I sinned in ignorance and unbelief. I didn't know. When you sin not in ignorance and you continue to sin and you continue to justify your sin and tell everybody why it's okay while you're committing your sin and you keep on and you keep on and you keep on, that's not going to be met with mercy and grace from the church. But with discipline and correction. And again, this is teaching, leading sin. It's doctrinal error. And that cannot be. Cannot be. To the point that these guys may have to be ultimately stopped. Now, don't miss the gravity here. This is not a game. This is not playtime. This is war. War particularly over the doctrine. Doctrine is a big deal. And Paul is calling Timothy to the front lines, to extreme measures, to life and death, literally. 
with a sure faith and a gloriously forgiving and saving Lord and a good conscience toward God and man, Timothy is about to do battle even to the death for some. And that's where we stop today. Paul don't go into much detail here. And we're not going to get more about this next week. But we do have to apply what we've looked at today. There's probably 28,000 application points. We're going to do three. Three C's. Catechize. C-A-T-E. C-H-I-Z-E. Catechize. Which is as fun to say. Catechize. 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 Correct. And charis, which is a Greek word. We'll get to that in a minute. Catechize, correct, and charis. First application point from today's passage is catechize. We talked about the trustworthy sayings, worthy of full acceptance. It is incredible and awesome to me that the early church here in the 60s AD, just 20, 30 years past Jesus' resurrection, are catechizing their people. They're distilling the faith, the doctrine, down into bite-sized snippets that everybody would have their attention drawn to and remember and probably could recite. This is a trustworthy statement. We believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. This is a trustworthy statement. We believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. Whose job is it to catechize? It is the church's job. And particularly, it is the parent's job. Deuteronomy 6, way back in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6, 4-9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today, God says, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Everywhere, all the time, and all you do, you're catechizing. You're teaching. Why? Because we have to be immersed in this. We have to be immersed in the faith and the doctrine, because if not, we get polluted. We get diluted. We get led astray. You say, well, my parents didn't catechize me. That's what the church is for. Is that we pick up each other and we help each other and we come back and we do the same thing over and over and over and over. Stand up, church. Let's recite our mission statement. Let's, what do we believe, church? We just stand for the public reading of the scripture. Come to the table. Remember and proclaim. Listen to the word proclaim. Catechize, 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 catechize. And that's our job. As the church collective, as individual members, as families, as parents in particular. Paul says this to Timothy later in 2 Timothy 1, 13-14. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. In the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And there's your catechizing. Take a good deposit. Take the good word. Take the Bible. Take the scripture. Take the good doctrine and share it with your kids. Share it with the church and entrust it to them that they might be able to do the same thing as well with other people. 2 Timothy 2.2 2. Things you've heard from me in the presence of faithful men entrust to faithful men. Things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others likewise. And it should never stop. The passing on of the good deposit. The passing on of the good deposit. The passing on of the good deposit. And that cannot happen if we're not purposefully catechizing, teaching like the early church did. That's application point one. Second is correct. Like fix. Discipline. 
We definitely saw that today, right? There is a time and there is a process to discipline those in the church who sin, whether it be in ignorance or on purpose, for those who continue to sin, regardless of the discipline, and those who persist in sin to ultimately deliver them over like we're going to see. Matthew 18. Oh, we hear, oh my, Matthew 18. This is how we're supposed to do discipline, right? But listen. Please listen, please. Please help me to listen. If your brother sins against you, go and tell everybody else. If your brother sins against you, Grumble in your tents. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. You and her alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Turn his, her hind end over. To who? To Satan. For the destruction of the flesh, so that their spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Again, we don't jump to step three real quick. If there are people sitting in this building this morning who you have a problem with, go to them. They've wronged me, they won't listen to me. How do you know you haven't gone? If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. That's the goal. That's what we want. If he doesn't listen, take one or two along with you. Listen, you're not not responding well. I'm, I'm I'm trying to love you. I'm trying to correct you. And now here's a question. How should we respond if corrected? That's something we don't talk about much. How should the person who's being corrected respond? Well, you just hurt my feelings. You're just being mean to me. What about, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize that what I was doing was such an issue, such a problem. Will you forgive me? You've gained your brother. Or they're like, whatever. Okay, love you. And then they persist. Okay, I'm going to take two or three with me because we've got to confront this. Why? Because this person is being sinful. This person is bringing division or problems into the church. And that can't be. Christ can't be divided. Nor can the body of Christ. So let's take a couple people, two or three with us, and let's have a powwow. Let's talk. Not out of anger. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to prove to them that what I said about you was right. That's not the, that's not the spirit. Listen, we got issues, we got problems, we've got to fix them. I urge you, Odie, and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony. And if they don't listen, nah, I ain't doing nothing wrong. You're just being oversensitive. We got we got to bring it to the church. Imagine that. Listen, church, we got to talk about something today. Jason's a bonehead, and he won't listen. And we've, we've, we've talked to him individually and we've taken two or three along with us. And they won't listen. Jason won't listen. He's hard-headed. And we're going we're gonna to have to hand him over if he doesn't listen to the church. And the church says, yes and amen. And Jason says, forget you. I don't need you, church. There are a thousand churches out there I could go to. I don't need you. And then we dissociate. And we hand you over to Satan for the destruction of your flesh. What's that look like? Oh, I don't know. I don't think that you fall dead in the parking lot. Could be. Ananias and Sapphira, right? 
How should we respond? Humbly, meekly, repentantly. Or if you get recalcitrant, if you get unrepentant and you just persist, 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 there's going to come a time when we've got to go separate ways. And now you're outside of the fellowship and that's not where you want to be. I'm not trying to scare you into staying at church. That's not my goal. This is church discipline. And the goal is the restoration of your brother. Even to the point of the leadership or the whole church turning somebody over to Satan. And if we won't do that, God will do it. God's not going to allow this to persist in his, in his body. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 13, to finish this application point out. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Some of you are sitting going, oh, I'm going to get some calls this week. <laughs> Listen, discipline is based in love. Punishment is based in anger. We want to restore perfect, harmonious fellowship. And we will go to the point of handing over somebody's physical body to Satan so that their spirit will be saved in the day of Christ Jesus. And that's what Paul's calling Timothy to. And since it's in our Bible, guess who else he's calling it to? Catechize, correct, and finally, thank God. Charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. We Hebrews would say charis. It's the Greek word for grace. Grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. I was blind, but now I see. Grace is for the foremost of sinners. The four worst, you could say. Not the four worst. Grace is for the totally depraved. And that's all of us. There is grace for the sinner who does not know Christ. There's grace for the worst of sinners who does not know Christ. There's grace for a, a brother who's offending you. And there's way more grace than we could ever tap into and exhaust. Romans 5, 20 to 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, hallelujah, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Where sin increased, grace abounded all you cannot outsin the grace of God. Paul preaches the gospel. We'll end here. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 11. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers, at one time most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, His brother, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me, the foremost of sinners, for I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But... By the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me.
whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Grace is there to save you from your sins. Grace is there to work in and through you after you've been saved from your sins. And the grace of God can do exceeding abundantly above anything that you can think or imagine. Even to the foremost of sinners. Even to that offending brother. So go do warfare with that, Timothy. And Jason. Providence Bible Church. Let's pray. Father, it's hard to process all this. And I've been exhausted all week trying to process all this. And here we stand. We can do no other. Father, help us to be a group of people and individuals who catechize one another. Help us to be a group of people and individuals who help correct each other, who receive that correction and repent accordingly. And God, may we be individuals and a group of people who are more than willing to show the goddess, the grace of Christ to ourselves, to each other, and to a lost and dying world. And we need your help. And you are more than willing to give it. So we ask for it now. Father, if there be those who have not seen salvation from their sins, in this moment, by the power of your Spirit, speak life. Give them the faith that is required to come to you so that they might be gloriously saved, miraculously saved by the amazing grace that we're talking about this morning. May they put their faith in the finished work of Christ for the salvation from their sins. Help us, God. Please help us to be these kind of people and to do this kind of warfare. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before you stand to receive a benediction, we've got an incredibly wonderful thing to celebrate. Don, Bob, you guys want to come up here? We talked about fellowship with the church. We talked about... um, what it means to be in the protection and in the fellowship of the church. And today the Schmitz are signing their membership covenant. They, they are covenanting together with us that they want to be a part of what's going on here and it doesn't make us cool and better than any other church. But we are. But we are. <laughs> By grace, we're just a bunch of sinners who need each other and the grace of God. And I just want to read through here again there's, there's the doctrinal statement, there's the covenant, and I want to read a snippet of the covenant of what this covenant is affirming that we will do what they will do. I commit myself to the one and only triune God and to the other members of Providence Bible Church by affirming the following. I have repented of my sin and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I trust in His atoning death alone for justification before God, with whom I now have peace because I am in Christ. I have been baptized, another affirmation. I affirm the Providence Bible Church member confession of faith, which is not a difficult document to process, by the way, hopefully. Um, I desire to be a member of Providence Bible Church. I affirm and accept the following responsibilities and will fulfill them by the grace of God. And those responsibilities are to seek to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, to support the church with my regular attendance in worship, to seek to use my spiritual gift in our church to the glory of God, to support the church financially, to be accountable to the church in doctrine and conduct, and six, to submit to the loving rule, oversight, and authority of the elders regarding reproof, instruction, correction, and loving discipline as they submit to Christ who is the head of the church. And that's the document um, that the Schmitz will be signing today as federal heads, husband and wife, mother and father. If you guys would come up, and I do have a pen there, right? Let's see there. That's one of those Freedom Baptist pens that there are a plethora of around here. Uh, if you guys would sign that, it's sign, print, and date, I think. And then we'll have all of you come up and we want to pray for you as we enter into this solemn, wonderful, beautiful, powerful covenant to the glory of God.
and the rest of your family, if you want to come up, and we'll try to establish a perimeter. I don't know if that'll work or not, but I'm taking. I'm using military terminology. Come on up here, young Schmitz. And I think this is good information to have. Um, their oldest son is a member of another church, and he's of age. And we say, God bless you. And uh, we uh, validate that. We respect that. And um, welcome the rest of you guys that aren't of age yet. You're ours, so you don't get to get away. So. <laughs> uh, Don, Bob, would you guys pray for them? And then I'll pray, and we'll be conclude this and be dismissed to go eat. Father, we're grateful for Father, we thank you that you, in your perfect wisdom, have designed the church. And you've placed us individually as members of that body, the body of Christ, according to the design that you have seen fit. And you've seen fit to bring the Schmitz to be a part of our fellowship. And we affirm that and we praise you for it and ask that you would help us to be a blessing to them, help them to be a blessing to us. May it be mutually beneficial. And may you receive the glory for all that happens as a result of them being with us. God, we thank you, we praise you, and we ask your blessing on them and on us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now would the rest of you stand for a benediction as we are dismissed? I think we'll just stay where we were at today. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed, but stay and eat with us if you can.